Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the little book of Galatians in the New Testament. And we're going to begin reading there in just a moment. For, for some time, I have had a desire for us to just study a book. And we have the opportunity. We have exactly the number of Sunday nights that I could count. Uh, just enough Sunday nights to do an overview of this particular book of Galatians, and it is a treasure, and I believe after you've spent some time in it, you'll see what a treasure it is, and so I want to encourage you after tonight to take some time to read through the book of Galatians. It's six chapters. It won't take you very long, and I have found, and I know many of you have found, that if you read and reread a small book like that, it really begins to come together for you. Um, on repeated reeling, readings, and, um, and so I want to encourage you in that way. But we're talking tonight, uh, we're going to look at the first nine verses by introduction. Obviously, uh, in five or so Sunday nights, we're not going to be able to do verse-by-verse verse study of this particular book. And, um, and I would like us to get there eventually, but for the purpose of this, this study, I want us to go ahead and, and dive into Galatians and really pull out some of the key ideas. And so each night, we're going to try to capture a particular concept that Paul is making very, very clear in this book of Galatians. And tonight, our focus is going to be on the word rescued as a way of describing the different things he's done. Tonight, we're going to focus on the word rescued and how he has rescued you and me. And so to begin tonight, I just want to read the first nine verses. You can follow along in, in your version of the Bible. And he starts off in this way. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Strong words as Paul launches in to this particular letter. Galatians is like holding a bomb because when that bomb goes off in your understanding, it absolutely revolutionizes the way that you think about yourself, about God and how he wants to live through you, his life. You have, in school at some point, if you didn't, you should have uh, heard about or studied the Great Awakening in the early part of the 18th century in North America. 
we were not a United States back then. We were a group of colonies under the rule of the British government, under a king. But it was during that time, about 1740, 1742, was really the height of that period when revival broke out in those 13 colonies. And it's estimated that 20% of the population came to know Christ and were swept into the churches under the preaching of men like George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. But before that occurred, the great awakening that it shook and really formed a foundation. In fact, some secular historians believe there would not have been an American Revolution without the Great Awakening. And, and before that occurred, there had to be an awakening in the hearts of the men who led that, that amazing event. And in fact, that's what happened earlier in the 1730s. There were a group of young men, and John and his brother Charles were part of the group, and they were meeting at a place called Aldersgate in London. And they were meeting regularly, and their whole desire was to really get to know God. They wanted spiritual reality. They were tired of religion. They wanted to know God. They wanted to know what was the truth about him, what was the truth about being a Christian. And so they were doing everything they could to do the right things, learn the right things. And one member of that group, a man named um, Thomas Holland, William Holland, got a hold of a copy of a commentary by Martin Luther on the book of Galatians. And, and it looked really good. And so he got with the guys, and, and they had these regular meetings, and he got with them, he said, let's read this together. And so Charles was the one that was going to read that particular evening, and he picks up the book, and he starts reading the preface. Martin Luther was the reformer that had lived some 200 years before that, in the early part of the 16th century and is known as the founder of the Lutheran Church, but he really was one of those who got it and understood how salvation comes by grace through faith. And so Charles starts reading the preface to somebody else's commentary on Galatians. It's on Galatians. And it was Luther's just his summary of the book. And this is what happened. Uh, Thomas Holland later wrote, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud, and at a certain point in his journal, he said, There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground that I walked on. He was so excited that he started taking the preface to Luther's commentary on Galatians and going up and down the street, going to friends' houses and saying, can I read something to you? He was that excited. John Wesley, who was instrumental in the Great Awakening, was listening when, that night when Luther's preface was read. And this is what he said in his journal. He said, my heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ. And it was a marvelous turning point in his life when Jesus became not a name in an old book, but became a living Savior to him. As we study Galatians, or begin our study tonight, I want, us, I want to share five background facts. And so if you're following along, taking notes on your handout, uh, 
you want to get it out at this point. Five background facts just by way of introduction before we look at this principle of rescue tonight. The first fact I would share with you is this. In Acts 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul visited the Roman province of Galatia during his first missionary journey, probably in 47 A.D. And so as you read those chapters, Acts 13 14, Paul's passing through the southern part of this Roman province called Galatia, and he establishes some churches. He actually comes back through that area sometime later in Acts 18. And so he's made at least two journeys that we know of through Galatia, through the southern part and then through the northern part later. I want you to see a little map. Go ahead and pull that up. This is kind of a picture of modern-day Turkey, but right in the middle of modern-day Turkey is this area that's, that we call Asia Minor. And right in the middle of it is the province, the Roman uh, jurisdiction of Galatia. The northern part of Galatia was settled by Celtic people. And they were considered crude and un unlettered and, and nasty people. And they were in the, the northern part of Galatia. But the southern part were people who were more like the Romans and had the Roman culture and the Roman society, Roman teaching. And so that's the area where he was traveling. And these were, these were pagan people. They worshipped uh, Greek gods and goddesses. They worshipped the emperor. They often had local deities that they worshipped. And it was into that environment that the Apostle Paul comes and begins to preach the gospel. And he explains to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And he gives them the background of what it means for him to come and announce or preach that the kingdom of God is here. And, and the book of Acts describes that, at least in Ephesus, where Paul preached about the kingdom for two years. And it says, everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Asia, in that picture, is in the bottom left corner of Asia, of that province. That province of Asia was not what we call Asia today, but it was a little piece of the bottom left corner of modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus was there, and Paul taught about the kingdom of God. He taught that there was, there was a God who was greater than any God that they had known, and he was an active God, and he did things, and that their greatest problem was sin, and that Jesus came and dealt with their greatest problem so that they could come to know this God in person. And so he was, he was preaching that, teaching that, and then would take a group of believers and establish a church, and that was typically his pattern. He didn't go to individual houses. He would go to a municipality, a a city, a large town, and he would start there, and he would preach publicly until church was established. That's the first thing you need to know. Second thing, agitators followed Paul and wanted to compel Gentiles to live as Jews. Agitators followed him around. They said, Paul doesn't really know what he's saying. Uh, everyone believes in the Messiah, they would say, but what Paul's telling you is leaving some really important things out. His message, he didn't get it from the authorities in Jerusalem, the apostles, we know them. They were Jewish people, good Jewish people. Paul didn't get that from them. He, he got this on his own. We, we know the inside story. We know what Jesus was really about. We know the truth. And, and so they came right behind Paul and they supplanted his teaching. They were teaching that in order to become a Christian, you not only had to trust Jesus the Messiah, but you had to recognize the old covenant of the Old Testament. And that covenant said that God would save you and God would take care of you if you would recognize and keep certain rules faithfully, like circumcision, like 
certain dietary rules and laws, like observing the Sabbath. And if you were careful to keep these things, then yes, anyone, even a Gentile, could become part of this new thing called Christianity. But you had to keep these additional rules. Salvation included that as well. So that brings me to the third fact. The difference was not in how people are saved. It was by trusting Jesus. But what they must do to become acceptable to God and full members of his covenant people. And as we go deeper into this book, it may challenge you and the way that you approach being a Christian. Because Paul was pretty brutal about pointing out that there are ways to live as a Christian that absolutely don't work and don't reflect the truth of the gospel. The fourth fact is this, scholars debate when and where Galatians was written. Uh, I showed you that map a while ago. Uh, they believe that Paul passed through the southern part of Galatia in Acts 13 and 14, and some believe, people believe that this letter was written not long after he went through there. And it was part of his preparation to go to a big conference in Jerusalem in Acts 15 that had to do with keeping all of the Jewish scruples and, and rules. And, the, and so the theory behind who is this letter addressed to is called the South Galatian theory, if you believe that. Others said, no, this letter was written to the people in the northern part of Galatia, years after Acts 15, years after the Jerusalem conference that dealt with these scruples. And so Paul's passed through there in Acts 18, and he started these churches up there, and he's sending this letter back to them. And if that's the case, then he wrote the letter much later, probably the same time he wrote Romans. And so you have scholars debating, and I'm telling you, they've written books this thick on who this letter was addressed to, either the people in North Galatia or the people in South Galatia. Can I tell you the truth about that discussion? I will tell you the truth. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it matters not one whit whether it was addressed to the Christians of North Galatia or South Galatia. It makes no difference in how we read it, study it, or interpret it. The fifth fact is this. The central theme of the letter is clear. Paul is deeply concerned with how are you living. How are you living your Christian life? You've trusted Jesus. How are you living that life? I think one of the key verses that will light up for you as we go through the study is found in Galatians chapter 3, verse, verse 3. And this is a pivotal statement. Are you so foolish? He says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? How are you living? I believe Paul's approach to the Christian life in Galatians can be captured by five key concepts. I've listed them for you on your handout, and it shows the dates that we're going to cover each one. Rescued, justified, crucified, adopted, and indwelled, all describing you and me after we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I want to build our discussion tonight around verse 4. It says, 
describing Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And it's just tucked in there, but it's a powerful statement, and it helps us understand what Jesus has done for you and for me. What does it mean to live as a rescued person? That word deliver means to rescue. What does it mean to live as a rescued person? First of all, it means I am removed from danger. To be rescued means you were in danger, and now you're no longer in danger. I am removed from danger. And what danger were you in? Well, if you go back to verse 4, you can see the dangers that are listed there. It says, he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Do you recognize the danger that you were in before you were saved? Or if you're not a Christian tonight, that you're in right now? Do you recognize that danger? The first one he describes, or the second one really, let me take that one first, is that you are captive in an evil age. Captive in an evil age. In verse 4, he delivered us from this present evil age. And so until that happened, until you were rescued, you were captive in that evil age. In the Jewish conception of time, there were only two divisions to time. There was this present evil age that all of us are living in. And then there was the age to come, where God would come and establish his kingdom and his rule. And we talked about that at length last fall. And uh, we have not yet talked about it in the New Testament. But part of the salvation that you and I have experienced is that we were in this great danger because we were trapped in this present evil age, and we have been rescued from that evil age. What does he mean when he talks about this present evil age? In the Garden of Eden, when man sinned, everything changed. Right down to the cell's on a biological level, creation became corrupted by sin. And man and woman who were given dominion over the earth, and God intended that we would subdue it and multiply and fill it, but that we would rule over the earth, have dominion over the earth, that dominion, that right to rule, that God gave to us in his image, we are made in his image, that we were going to rule, we we're going to be creative, we were going to take care of this world. We lost that. And the, literally, the devil took dominion over the earth. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus said he did. At least three times in the Gospel of John, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. And you'll remember when we talked about it before that that word ruler is a Greek word, archon. And it refers to the highest authority in a geographical region. And the Bible says, Jesus said, that Satan is the archon of this world. And so the consequence of that is, is that when you and I try to talk to someone about why is there so much pain and suffering in the world, if God is good and everything he makes is good and he said creation is good, and we try to talk to people about the goodness of God, and they look at this world, and they see pain and suffering, they see hardship, and they see killer diseases that, that eat little children from the inside out, and they see all kinds of horrific things take place in nature where one creature eats another creature while it's yelling and screaming. And, and you have killer storms that come in and destroy human beings and take lives. And you look at all of that, and they say, well, that doesn't look like intelligent design to me. That looks monstrous. 
If you try to have that conversation about the goodness of God and that you can see the goodness of God even in creation, but you leave out the fact that the creation as it now stands has been corrupted and is being ruled over by an evil personality who has destroyed creation. And it says in Romans 8 that creation is groaning, waiting for that moment when this present evil age is going to be brought to a close. And God restores creation to what he originally intended it to be but right now we're captive in this present evil age not only externally by by an enemy but but internally by our sin we'll get to that in just a moment let me read one verse to you first john 5 19 captive in an evil age this is true right now we know that we are of god those of us who are christians and the whole world everybody else lies under the sway of the wicked one that's right now That's why we try to tell people about Jesus, because they're trapped, they're being held captive, and they need to be rescued. That's why we invite people to Easter services. That's why we invite people to come to church where the gospel's preached. That's why we try to share the gospel ourselves with people who are lost, because they need to be rescued. And if that's not firmly planted in our thinking, well, we're not going to live like that, are we? If I don't really believe people are in trouble, if I really don't believe that they're being held captive, I'm not going to do anything about it. It's not going to be a concern. So we know that we are of God. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Let me, let me, let me call your attention to one other, other verse that underscores how, how serious this is. If you, if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I thought about this driving down the hill tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And he's talking to Christians. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But listen to what he says about that. In which you once walked according to to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Go back to verse 2. He says, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who do you think that is? Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You realize that when we try to share the gospel with someone, there's a demonic presence that is trying to keep you from being understood, from being heard, that there is literally a demonic spirit at work inside every person that doesn't know Christ. That's what it says. And so we are trapped. In another place, Paul says in Corinthians that we are blinded by the God of this world. Blind. And unless Jesus rescues that person, they're not going to change. It's not going to get better. You should never be surprised 
when people resist the gospel, there's, there are other forces and influences at work. So the danger we were in is that we were captive, held captive in an evil age. There's another danger. We were held by sins, held by sins. He gave himself for our sins. That was a problem. It was so serious, he gave his life to deal with that problem. It was such a danger to you, he gave his life. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. What held you captive in this present evil age? What held you firmly into the, the kingdom of the enemy, of Satan? In Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, it says something very similar. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, or the domain, or the place where darkness is in control, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so we have been, when you come to know Christ, you've been, you're physically still here. But spiritually, your address has changed, and you are no longer part of the kingdom of darkness. And God has taken you delivered you, lifted you up, and put you into the kingdom of his son, even though physically you're still here. The whole world then at that point is under the sway of the enemy, but we have been born of God. And we're in a different place. In Colossians 1, 13, verse 14, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The word redeem always is describing a transaction where someone was in slavery or bondage and has been set free by the payment of a price. In the language and theologically, redemption always describes setting something free by the payment of a price. And it says here what the price was. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've been set free. We've been rescued. What was holding us into that kingdom what was the basis by which Satan had a legal right to hold you in the domain of darkness? It was your sin. It was your sin. And once forgiven, once his blood atoned for your sin, the legal basis for holding you in that kingdom was removed. And these were the great dangers you and I faced at this moment as Paul talks about it in Galatians. Captive in an evil age, held by sins. When someone has been rescued, they recognize that they've been removed from danger. There's a second thing that happens. I am indebted to the Savior. I am indebted to the Savior. Again in verse 4 it says, Who gave himself, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. Now, in verse 4, when it says that, that he gave himself, um, in the original language, there's certain things that are going on that I want you to try to understand, try to hear. Um, he gave himself for our, sin, for our sins is, in the tense, it's describing an action in a, as a point in time. So as a point in time, he accomplished something for you and me. One point in time. It wasn't a process. It wasn't something that took a long time. It happened at a very point in time. He gave himself. You know when that happened? We're going to talk about it at Easter on Good Friday. On the cross, he gave himself, point in time. It is middle voice. What does that mean? It means he did it to himself. No one forced him to do it. I didn't cause him to do it. He did it for himself on his own. He caused himself to do it. And so if I was going to 
translate it, just kind of put it in the Pusick Revised Version. He himself once and for all plucked us out. He himself once and for all plucked us out of this present evil age. Jesus is not just my teacher. He is my hero. I was helpless and I was drowning and I could do nothing to save myself and he rescued me. And this is the great difference between Jesus and Buddha and Jesus and Confucius and Jesus and Mohammed is that they never saved anybody. You're in the water, you're drowning. The whole problem with each of those religious systems is they do not understand how much trouble you are in and how helpless you are. You're down there swashing around in the water, you're about to die, you're going to drown, and they throw you a book and say, hey, read that. Jesus jumps in the water, and in the process of rescuing you, he gives his own life. He is our hero. And so at that moment when you're drowning and when you're dying, and you're being held captive in this present evil age, and you're bound in it by your sin. You don't need a lecture. You need a Savior. Number three, the person who is rescued understands that I am pursued by the Father. I am pursued by the Father. You know, I, I wrote an article, I don't know if you read it in the challenge, about being accepted and how important it is that we as Christians practice accepting one another receiving one another into friendship, into fellowship, with no conditions, just wide open arms, saying that we receive and we love you. And because the Father pursues us like that, and we are most like him when we love people who are not lovable, and we're able to receive and accept people no matter what. But in verse 4, here's why, where that comes from, this idea that I'm pursued by the Father. It says in verse 4, I'll just read it again. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Now listen to this phrase. According to the will of our God and Father. Whose idea was it? Who took the initiative to rescue you and me? It was the Father. It was his idea from the very beginning, from start to finish. It didn't matter who you were, what condition you were in, how bad you've been, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was the Father's idea. It was according to His will. It was His desire. It was His plan. It was His mercy that was at work when you and I were rescued. Our response says, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. You know, He just, He's telling you. <laughs> he's telling you. What do you do with a Father like that? You give Him glory. You give him praise forever and ever. It was his idea. And do you do that? And you have to do this on purpose. You're not just going to ease into this way of life. But do you get up in the morning and do you thank the Father for rescuing you? Do you give him glory and praise for coming after you? You were drowning and he sent his son. He said, go get him, son. 
and we should give him glory for that. And then finally, number four, the person who's rescued understands that I am targeted by the enemy, targeted by the enemy. Here these Galatians had received the gospel. They had been delivered from the present evil age, and Paul's reminding them of that. They had been forgiven for their sins. He reminds them of that. They had been pursued by the Father. He reminds them of that. But then in, in verse 6, everything changes. He says, I marvel, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He says, guys, I just am reminding you of the things that we talked about and what you responded to and what God did for you when I was with you. And I'm absolutely dumbfounded that you're turning away to something else. And it's not good news. It's a totally different message. And the moment that someone trusts Christ, they become a target for the enemy. You know, he doesn't want a person to know that they can live by faith. He doesn't want a person to know the significance of an indwelling spirit of Christ inside a person. He doesn't want you to know about that. He doesn't want you to know that the whole process of salvation is that you move to the back seat and Jesus moves to the front seat. That it's not your life, it's his life that's to be lived in you and through you. And the devil doesn't care if you've set your mind to try to be a good Christian person. He doesn't care if you're going to try to keep all the rules of what it means to be a good person. He doesn't care if you're going to try to live your life in the strength of your own effort and your own ingenuity and your own planning. He doesn't care about that. But the moment you determine that I'm going to abide in Christ, that I'm going to climb into the yoke with Christ, and he said my yoke is easy, the moment you decide to let Christ live his life through you, then all hell will break loose against you. And that's what was happening to the people in Galatia. Is they had understood a simple truth, and they were losing it. And they were being targeted by the enemy. And the apostle knew that. We don't war against flesh and blood, he would later write to the people at Ephesus. We war against an unseen enemy, and he wants to do everything he can, even after you become a Christian, to keep you from living the Christ life. The last statement I would share is this. In verse 6, he says, you're turning away so soon from him. Turning away so soon from him. Here's the last statement. When I don't get the gospel right, it is not an intellectual problem. It is a relational problem, a turning away from him. That's what it says in verse 6. It's not that they were turning away from what it meant to be a good Baptist. It, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't about that they had turned away from a particular body of doctrine or teaching. It's that they were turning away from Jesus himself to begin to live a way that Jesus was trying to deliver them from in the first place. And they were being targeted by the enemy. And so if you are frustrated in your walk with God, if you are discouraged in your walk with God, if you are confused about how a person lives their life as a follower of Christ, 
please understand that you have an enemy who's doing everything he can to keep you right there, thoroughly confused. Tonight, if you've never trusted Jesus, do you understand how much trouble you're in without Christ? Do you understand that your greatest problem, your greatest need, is for a new life? A new life. Altogether new. That you're living in an environment, a hostile environment, you may not even have realized it, but that environment is being manipulated and controlled by an enemy who does not want you to know God, know forgiveness, know the life that he intended for you. And tonight, are you willing to trust him and say, rescue me, rescue me? All that stuff the preacher said, Lord, do that for me. I'm tired of this world that I'm living in. And if there's a new kind of way to live, Lord, I want that. And I, all I've done in my life is mess up. And Lord, if you're willing to forgive me, and if you sent Jesus for me, then I'm ready to give you what I am, such as I am, all that I am. And I surrender to you. If that's your heart tonight, I would encourage you, in the environment of supportive Christians who are going to be praying for you, I would encourage you to come and publicly Confess Christ. Put your trust in him. If you're a believer tonight, and this is not um, a Bible study for you, it is life to you, and you are struggling, and you are hurting, and you just need someone to pray for you, we'll all be here. Pastors will be down here at the front. We would be absolutely delighted to pray with you and to help you sort out the confusion that's in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your, for your incredible, awesome gospel, the good news that Jesus did it all. He came and rescued us. He came after us. He came seeking us, and he came because you sent him, and because you loved us so much that you gave him to die on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray tonight that those truths will become real in every heart in this room. The truth of our danger and the, the truth of our rescue, would you make it real? As we respond to you now, in Jesus' name I pray.